Yes. Oh, dear Father, you care about everything. Thank you so much that you, oh, that we are blessed, that you count us so precious in your sight. And thank you for this word today, which shows us that you opened the pathway to not just the Jewish people, but to us Gentiles as well, that your word of grace and salvation is by faith alone. Thank you for the teaching today, and thank you for Lily. Thank you so much for her heart and for her giftedness, how you've so gifted her to be such a great vessel for your word to us. May we be prepared equally to receive and hear and understand your word today. We love you and thank you for your love to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. See, I wear contact lenses and they only see for one foot. <laughs> so I had to, had to adjust that. Well, one time, a very aged, a very rich multimillionaire was asked how he had acquired his wealth. So his story went something like this. Well, when my wife and I first got married, we were so very tight financially. But what I lacked in money, I had in energy. And so I took the one leftover nickel from our monthly budget and I bought an apple. And I spent the evening shining up and polishing that apple until it was so shiny, it was beyond beautiful. So the next day, I went out to the street corner, and I sold that apple for 10 cents. That is 100% profit. And then I took that dime, and I bought two apples, and I again worked most of the evening polishing them, and I sold them the next day for 20 cents. Then I bought four apples. I sold them for 40 cents. And then I bought eight apples, and I shined them up really good, and I reached $1.60. Then what happened next is my wife's dad died and left us a couple million dollars. <laughs> and he said, that is the whole process of how I became a multimillionaire. <laughs> I love that story because in it, I see myself. My human nature wants to take just a little bit of credit. And those of us that have a relationship with Jesus, don't we sometimes act like the guy in the story and we say, I am so rich in my relationship with the Lord. And then we add, because. Because. I rarely miss my morning devotional. Because I fast regularly. Because I feed the homeless. Because I work so hard at my church. And sometimes that because is what we don't do. I'm so blessed because I don't lie, cheat, steal. I want you to hear Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 from the message version of the Bible. It's a modern language Bible. It's actually called a transliteration because it translates ideas rather than word for word. Listen to the message. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. 
It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. Isn't that good? So, in reality, there are some things that we just can't take credit for. Any credit, right? Now, listen to Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. This is in the NIV version of the Bible. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. We are rich. Yes, we are rich. We are spiritual multimillionaires, but it's not from our apple polishing, right? It's only because God chose us. Jesus died for us and showered us with every spiritual blessing after blessing after blessing. And as Paul says in our verse, to the praise of his glorious grace. Grace. Let's stop and define grace. Grace is the unearned, undeserved favor of God. He loves us immeasurably, and he blesses us not because dot, 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 and then we fill in the blank. He loves us because, just because, period, right? One dot. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's who he is, and so that's what he does. Love. And God, out of that essence, out of the essence of who he is, gives us every spiritual blessing in Christ. (laughs) And I had fun this week thinking of what every spiritual blessing meant. And I'm sure I only came came up with half of them. By every spiritual blessing, what that would mean, eternal life through Jesus. That would mean his presence, grace. His love, freedom, direction, comfort, wisdom, joy, peace, and our own unique areas in which to serve. Every spiritual blessing. What have I left out? Maybe you've thought of something else. I know there's more. As far as our own unique areas in which to serve, by the way, these are far from drudgery. This is not drudgery we're talking about. They are areas that we enjoy, areas we thrive in, and they help build up other believers, and they bring us joy. I mean, look at that list. How much are we utilizing these gifts? You know, my friend recently cleaned out her grown son's bedroom, and in his dresser, she found 
three or four fairly expensive sweaters and shirts that still had the tags on them and had never been worn. These had been gifts from her from birthdays past and Christmas past. And she was kind of hurt that he didn't even bother to take them in and exchange them for something he would use or wear. And how much more does God the Father give us, his children, gifts, and, and want us to enjoy them, to use them, to find joy in using them? Can I just say something that's going to sound a little weird? I teach the Bible because I want to. I want to. Now, that may not sound very spiritual, but you see, even that desire is God-given. The Christian life is so uniquely tailored to each one of God's children, and God gives us gifts, and then we have an excitement, a burning desire to use them. And joy just abounds when we have the opportunity to use them. We believers, you know, should stand out by our joy. Who says that God wants us or that serving God has to have this element of drudgery? I mean, that isn't even good theology, right? It's against the loving nature of our our Heavenly Father who who says he loves to give give good gifts to his children. You know, in my experience, I have found that the jobs that Jesus gives me to do are energizing. They're they're not draining. And sometimes when I take on tasks without the right motive, tasks that really he has not gifted me to do do or called me to do, that's when the life just kind of gets sucked out of me, you know? Jesus gave his own life, his own lifeblood to set us free free from that, anything that encumbers us. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. What a promise. And I've actually heard women say quite humbly, well, you know, I'm not particularly gifted. I am sorry, but that is just not scriptural. (laughs) It's not scriptural. What do you like to do? Oh, I like to cook and bake things and have people enjoy them. Great, then you have the gift of hospitality. Use it for God. I bet they already do, actually. They just don't even think about it. It's so natural to them that they haven't noticed. Or I love the computer and all things techie. I'm looking at our AV crew back there. Great, then plug in and use that for God. Do you love babies and children? Might your ministry be in the nursery on Sunday morning or maybe being a foster parent? Whatever it is, it is a get-to, not a have-to. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37.4. Do you want to hear the Lily paraphrase of that verse? Fall in love with Jesus and then do what you love for him and with gusto. The falling in love with Jesus is first, isn't it? And everything comes out of that. Everything we do for the Lord comes out of that. That relationship, our love for him. 
So I don't understand why some believers think that serving God has to feel like sacrifice. You know, others might look at you and think that it is sacrifice, but you won't. I just got done reading this book about these missionaries, Heidi and Roland Baker, and I tell you what, I would want to die if I had, got, had to go live in Mozambique. And they could not wait to get there. Does that make me less spiritual? No, God placed this burning desire in their hearts to go. They love what they do as much as I love teaching the Bible. It's a beautiful thing. Do you believe that God smiles, that God is so delighted in you when we, he sees us using all the spiritual gifts that he just lavishes on us? Showers is how the, how the word put it. Or do you catch yourself feeling like he, he's stern, that, that he has a harsh set of rules that we have to keep and, and standards that are strict and, and very difficult to attain? Is that what love does? No. <laughs> that really is a form of legalism. Let is, let's define legalism. Legalism is the belief that salvation or even staying in God's favor is accomplished by works and behavior. And you know what? I think it's our apple-polishing kind of pride that makes us feel like we're going to get more brownie points if it feels like a drudgery or a sacrifice. And, there, and, the, and that there's got to be at least a little bit of misery involved. We make it about us, and it's really about him. That is legalism. When we make it about us. Legalism and incorrect thinking about what our Abba Father is like was essentially you realize what the problem was in the early church in Acts 15. Some legalistic Jewish teachers came to Antioch, and they taught these new, happy, joyous Gentile Christians how they themselves had polished their apples in order to be saved, and that the Antioch Christians needed to do the same. They needed to be circumcised, and they needed to obey the law of Moses. Well, they forgot that they themselves couldn't actually quite ever keep the law of Moses. These Jews, I think, meant well. Give them the benefit of the doubt, right? But they failed to realize that they too were invited into this newness of salvation, this, this, this same great joy of a burden just like taken off your back. These teachers that came to Antioch were associated with the Jerusalem church, which was the headquarters of the new Christian movement in that day, led by James, the half-brother of Jesus, they came from there, but they were not authorized by that church, according to Acts 15.24. And yet, they came to Antioch, acting as if they did have some authority from Jerusalem, and they taught the wrong thing to these new Gentile converts in Antioch. They were apple polishers. And you know what? That's putting it really nicely. You know, you know what Paul called them? Paul, in Galatians 2 and, and chapter 5 of Galatians, refers to these legalistic people as false brothers. 
And in Philippians 3, Paul calls them dogs, calls them mutilators of the flesh. That's how riled Paul was about this issue of legalism. The false brothers were ignorant of the relationship between law and grace. They had been raised to revere and obey Moses, and in their defense, Paul hadn't written yet Romans or Galatians explaining it all. Now, here's for certain, though. They had more excuse because of that. They hadn't read Romans or Galatians. They had more excuse for their ignorance than we do today. And yet, we still see this in the churches today. We have those books to explain it to us. But still many don't believe that it's by grace, through faith, that you're saved. They always want to say, plus this and this. It can't be true, they say. There must be something that I have to do for these spiritual blessings, or at least to stay in favor with God. No, it is that good. It is that good. That's why it's called the good news. It's that good. You know, Hebrews hadn't been written yet either. And so on one hand, I, want, I really want to give these false brothers, also, by the way, called Judaizers or the circumcision party, I want to give them a break. It was a tough transitional time in which they lived. And a lot of us, well, we have trouble with change, don't we? And this was a, a, a tough transitional time. Change can be very difficult. And even though I want to lean and give them a break, I, I also need to talk about why these legalists were so very dangerous. Why is it so important not to mix law and grace. Why was this summit in Jerusalem necessary over this issue? Do you know that Jerusalem council, this, that was still, is still seen as a very big, decisive moment in the history of the Christian church. Here's what theologian John Stott says about the legalists. They were telling Gentile converts that faith in Jesus was not enough for salvation. They had to add circumcision and to circumcision, observance of the law. They must let Moses complete what Jesus had begun and let the law supplement the gospel. The issue was immense. The way of salvation was at stake. The gospel was in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. That all sounds very serious indeed, doesn't it? Did you know that Jesus actually saw a lot of this when he was walking and ministering on earth? He saw the beginning of this controversy. He also had taught and demonstrated grace in ways that ruffled the religious feathers. Jesus saw a lot of resistance to salvation by grace through faith. And so he taught this parable. No one tears a patch from the new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have the new garment 
and the patch from the new will not match the old. I'm sorry, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch will not match. Interesting parable, isn't it? Jesus knew. He knew there would be some who would want to take bits and pieces of his message, which was new, and kind of stitch it onto the fabric of their old ideas that had become threadbare, to stick with his metaphor. I'm just curious, with all 100-plus women of us here, how many of you know how to sew, who, who, who spent a lot of time sewing at one time? Remember those good old days? I used to sew everything I wore, from bathing suits to wool coats. But wow, have times changed. Times have changed. I don't even know where a fabric store is now. Right? In the 70s and the 80s, there was one on every, well, not every corner, but every shopping center had a fabric store. So, of all those hands that were up, which one of us seamstresses of days gone by would ever cut up a new dress to get patches for an old dress that had been torn? Ridiculous, right? So you see what Jesus was illustrating in the story. Isn't isn't he saying that my sacrifice on the cross is meant as a total replacement, not as a source of useful patches? I didn't come to patch up the old religious system. I came to do something entirely new. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you know, a lot of people misunderstand that verse. Or they quit quoting it after, I've not come to abolish the law. Back in the day, when there was a draft, and and of, into the military of our of our young men, once they fulfilled their duty as an American, they were done. Right? They were done. If you lived, if they lived, you got to go home. You got to start a career. You lived your life. You're no longer under any obligation to your officer in the military. They had fulfilled their duty. That's what Jesus meant. It's in that sense. The New Living Translation puts that verse this way, Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I come. I do not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That makes it clear, doesn't it? We have no more obligation to the law of Moses. Its purpose is fulfilled. Now, we need to know what the purpose was then, don't we? Its purpose was to drive us to Christ, to draw us to Jesus because of our failure to keep the law. So the law, Galatians says, was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Paul, who was our fierce advocate of God's grace at the Jerusalem conference that we study today in Acts 15, later wrote, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. How are we doing with the message of reconciliation that has been entrusted to us? Is that our main message? Or do we stress that people have to jump through certain hoops and clean up their act to be in relationship with Jesus? And remembering last year when we studied the Gospel of John, one year ago at this time, and we talked about Jesus' death and his resurrection, of course. And prior to that, there existed this barrier between man and God. And so in the big temple of Jerusalem, there was this big, thick veil or a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's where God's, the Spirit of God dwelled. But the moment Jesus died that thick curtain miraculously ripped in two from top to bottom. Do you remember studying that? It happened, and it was recorded in Scripture for a reason. The most sacred place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, was no longer separated from humans. We are all invited in because of Jesus' blood that now covers our sins. There was no more separation from God for the believer. And so the legalists of our passage today were dangerous because they were trying to block the new and living way to God through Jesus Christ that, that he had already opened up when he died on the cross. In a sense, weren't these legal, legalists trying to stitch that thick veil, that curtain, back together? And this is how serious of a mistake the writer of Hebrews thought that was. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? trampling on Jesus, the Son of God, taking his death on the cross lightly, dismissing really the thoroughness of what Jesus had done, Hebrews says, is insulting the spirit of grace. And that is serious. This letter to the Hebrews actually deals with the same exact thing that they were dealing with at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Whereas in Acts, the new Gentile believers were being pulled back into the rite of circumcision. In Hebrews, it was the Jewish believers who were being pulled back into temple worship, into the sacrificial system. So both Acts 15 and Hebrews are trying to say, 
They're not trying to say. They're saying that you are really missing the point if you do this. The price was already paid completely when Jesus died in your place. There are no more sacrifices that can be, that need be, that should be offered. The way is open. The curtain is torn. You can't add what Jesus did to the cross by circumcision, by your sacrifice, by your self-efforts, by your religious activities. How about if instead we practice the joy of our salvation? We fall in love with Jesus, and oh, we'll just want to please him. It changes everything we do in our Christian walk from have-tos to get-tos. Jesus has done it all, and we get to quit trying to earn what we already have. Sigh with me. (sighs) Relief, right? And so it isn't just some Jewish cultural practices that that were at stake. It was really the truth of the gospel and the future of the Christian church. I close by asking you these questions. In what ways... We've all done this. In what ways have you tried to put a yoke on yourself or another that is difficult to bear? And how might you better utilize every spiritual blessing that you've been given? Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the best, (laughs) and your plan is the greatest. And we thank you for your sacrifice and your love. And may each of us, Lord, be filled with joy at the truth of how amazing your grace is. We need your help, though, to live into the freedom that you died for and live well. Thank you that you invite us into relationship. Thank you for saving us from our efforts and from failure. Thank you for your provision and in your beautiful name, amen.